When I first met our guest today, journalism in America was going through a period of rapid and momentous change. Much of it brought on by the actions of a US president who was like an all-you-can-eat buffet for reporters. I, William Jefferson Clinton, do solemnly swear that I will... An obscure website in the wilds of cyberspace, the Drudge Report, had broken the story that Newsweek was sitting on an explosive exclusive. History was made in Washington today, and with it, careers were gutted. And that Bill Clinton was having an affair with a young intern. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie. Not a Indeed, I did have a relationship with Miss Lewinsky that was not appropriate. In fact, it was wrong. It constituted a critical lapse in judgment and a personal failure on my part. President Clinton was impeached as the House It was a pivotal moment for journalism around the world. Reporters on traditional mastheads like the Washington Post, some of whom didn't even have access to the internet, ended up posting their first online stories. The Monica Lewinsky scandal, we should have called it the Bill Clinton scandal, of course, was also when Fox News found its audience and its voice. Your source for news. Fox News Channel. We report, you decide. We had entered a period of digital disruption and polarized news, and our industry has never been the same since. I'm Nick Bryant, and this is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute. And today we're focusing on one journalist. Steve Cole is a giant of the industry, a one-time foreign correspondent, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and reporter, a former managing editor of The Washington Post, a staff writer for The New Yorker, and most recently the dean of the Columbia School of Journalism, which is widely regarded as the finest J school in the world. I want him to help us make sense of the changes that have overtaken our industry and to help forecast where we're going. It relates to presidential actions or knowledge of the Watergate affair. During the past year, the wildest accusations have been given banner headlines and ready credence as well. Steve Cole, the first time I ever met you was in the Washington Post newsroom the place that was the home of Ben Bradley, the legendary editor during Watergate, the place that had been the home of Woodward and Bernstein, the reporters that did so much to force the resignation of Richard Nixon. Indeed, Bob Woodward still worked at the Post. He does today. You were the managing editor at that time, and the industry was going through this massive transformation. We were covering a huge story. It was the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And at the same time, we were dealing with this period of dramatic technological change, the introduction of the internet. I wonder what your recollections are of that time. Yeah, the Clinton story broke as I was in transition to become the number two editor at The Post. And I found it uh, kind of a frustrating story. Clinton debased himself by being caught in lie after lie in legal proceedings. And the whole thing, I, I would stumble out of the newsroom at 11, 
putting the additions to bed 11 in the evening, getting ready to come back the next morning and think, I'm doing this, I'm putting my heart and soul into this for something that is going to be a footnote to a footnote of history 100 years from now. So I found it all very uninspiring, but certainly I was fully engaged in it. The transformation that was happening simultaneously, it wasn't obvious to me in the first part of 1998 what was happening. I was a little slow on the uptake, but I remember going to a conference in 1999 and seeing the numbers about online news adaptation and who was doing it, what kind of demographics, and coming back to the paper and saying, this is a complete revolution in our affairs. I was optimistic at the time because the way the web broke out initially for newspapers like ours was as an increase in readership. And suddenly we had millions of readers who were not subscribers to the print paper, who lived outside of our circulation area, who were coming to our digital product every day, even though our digital product was poor. And it seemed to indicate that there was a pent-up appetite for Washington Post journalism that we could serve and that the digital channels would allow us to do so at relatively low cost. So I, I felt a very strong sense of urgency that we should seize this opportunity. And I was optimistic that it was growth, that with readers would come revenue. At that time, my naive hypothesis was, well, wherever millions of people gather to consume information, someone will figure out a way to make money off of them. It just took a lot longer than I thought it would, and a lot of disruption occurred along the way. So, <laughs> I mean, it really was a big bang moment for journalism, not just because of the advent of the internet, but also we saw the emergence of Fox News, the emergence of polarized news on television. I wonder what's been the lasting impact of, of that. Well, it's, it has accelerated from those beginnings, partly for business reasons, because as the old media models fragmented in the internet and social media age, what became more valuable was intense engagement by audiences. Today, you see that in the prominence of subscription strategies in journalism, where the way newsrooms have replaced advertising revenue has been to convince readers that their news is worth paying for. And to get that level of engagement, you kind of have to get inside people's identity, inside their passions. And um, the same is true on cable television, where in a 1,000-channel universe, the winners are not necessarily the stations with the largest audiences, but the most engaged, the most passionate audiences. And Fox News is an example of that. So when you see the pretense of a neutral news voice giving way to more explicitly partisan voices, whether in print, digital, or on cable television, you're seeing the pull of uh, new business models that, that are focused on engagement and subscription. What you were saying there is that the successful news organizations kind of understand their tribe. And I wonder whether that has heightened tribalism in American journalism. I think it clearly has. I think the pull of these strategies, the messages from publishers and uh, you know producers 
is about tribalism because that's where the money is. Now, you get years into this dynamic. I think now we have a kind of chicken and egg question, which is to what extent is tribalism in the media causing political polarization and to what extent is it feeding off of political polarization that is occurring independently of the media? I think both things are true. I don't have a high confidence about what the proportions are, but the U.S. has been heading toward political tribalism outside of its media culture for years now. And so they are synchronizing, I think, in the age we're in today. I wonder what impact that has had on the journalistic DNA of the great mastheads in America like the Washington Post, like the New York Times. It seems to me that that church-state divide that was so key in newsrooms in the late 1990s, this refusal to allow any blurring between reporting and opinion and comment is not such a, a bright line of distinction now as it was back then. I completely agree with that, and I think the evidence would support that observation. It's it's in your face, literally, if you open the homepage of any of these storied news organizations, because what you'll find is at the top of the page or near the top of the page, big strip of opinion that has a slightly different typeface from the news stories, but is much more prominently played, much more heavily invested in. And then if you read the news files, you'll find voicing that is you know, much more analytical, much less driven by uh, reporting first. And then if you look at the social media feeds of, of the reporters, they're under enormous pressure to collect followings and to have impact. And they do that as best they can as human beings, but they give a lot of voice to their sense of the world, even if it's not expressing you know, explicitly partisan political opinions. It's kind of clear what their assumptions are, where they're coming from. And, and all of that re- reinforces this engagement. I mean, there is a whole world of center-left America that really wants a news organization that is driven by its common values. And, you know, if the New York Times has become sort of the guardian of America with a very explicit sense of its values and how those flow through the, the news report, I think there are many of its readers who would say it's about time. And the same is true with the audiences that are loyal to these cable networks. Their believers are convinced that this is actually the right way to understand the world. And we can say that we should be watching out for confirmation bias, that is, the pleasing emotional experience of having people tell you what you already believe. But nonetheless, It's where audiences are, and it's very difficult for newsrooms to develop models that will succeed economically without paying any attention to this kind of tribalism. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Well, number one, the Times should never have done that, because really what they've done is virtually, you know, it's treason. You can call it a lot of things. A few days ago, I called the fake news the enemy of the people, and they are. They are the enemy of the people. It's obviously become far more pronounced during the Trump years, as America has become even more polarized, as red 
and blue America has found it very hard to find common ground. And the case study that always strikes me is CNN. This guy is the worst ever. He is the worst president we have ever seen. You know, the CNN that I knew was very much a, a kind of American version of the BBC. Impartiality was absolutely key to its brand. Well, this is a president who piled crazy on top of crazy, on top of crazy, on top of crazy. If you thought the first three years of his term were bad, this year really took the cake, reached new lows. But if you turn on CNN now, of course, a lot of its programs, especially in the evening, begin with monologues by presenters. Even some of their reporters, you get a clear sense of where they are coming from politically. And I guess for CNN, they just realized that in a polarized America, the business model for impartial news just wasn't there anymore. And commercial pressures actually sort of took them to the left rather than a sense of journalistic mission. I, I wonder what you think about the evolution of CNN. Again, I think you have it right. I mean, they were driven by commercial pressures to a more opinion-driven talk show format, and they left field reporting behind. CNN originated as a aspirant to be like the BBC. I don't think they ever quite realized the BBC's range and confidence, but that was who they wanted to be. And they invested a lot in reporters in the field, and they were at the big stories, and they made original contributions around the world, and you could count on them in a crisis. Now, that model started to produce diminishing ratings and diminishing advertising revenue. And even though CNN was always profitable, even when its ratings were very low, I think its leadership looked at the rise of MSNBC on the left and Fox on the right and said, you know, why are we dying with such a powerful brand? We've got to get catch up with the times. And so I think their initial approach was not to tack left, but to have a lot of shouting and opinion from both sides. So they tried to be in the middle, but from an opinion first, talk show first perspective with voices on both sides. Trump required almost everybody in that business to decide, you know, you're either with him or you're against him. I think you should let me run the country, you run CNN, All right. and if you did it well, your ratings well, let me would be ask, much better. If I, if I may okay, ask one enough. other question, Mr. President, if I may, if I may hey, ask Peter, one other ahead. question, are you worried? That's enough, that's Mr. enough. Mr. President, I, well, that's I was enough. going to ask one of the, the other folks. That's had, enough. Pardon me, ma'am. I'm, I'm, Excuse me, that's enough. Mr. President, I one of the And they decided to ride the kind of passion of the opposition. I tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. But they still did keep more explicitly conservative voices on the air in their opinion shows, if you care about that sort of thing, which I don't. I turned them off years ago because I'm interested in reporting. I want to understand what's going on in the world, and CNN doesn't help you with that. All it gives you is a snapshot, one snapshot among several available of what a highly politicized, uh, talking point-driven discourse sounds like at any given moment, which I really don't feel I need a lot of. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. I want to talk about 
the rise of Donald Trump and how complicit we were as journalists uh, in his march to the White House. And again, I don't want to bag CNN, but obviously the default setting on a on a CNN television screen for much of 2016 was either Trump speaking or an empty podium where they had a countdown clock to tell you when Trump was going to step forward. They knew he was a ratings winner. Newspapers knew he was the clickbait candidate to end all, all clickbait candidates. I wonder whether our weaknesses as an industry in that period actually contributed to the strength of Donald Trump. I think they did. I think he exploited them. I mean, it was a time where the media lacked uh, confidence about its own uh, economic independence. And in the American system, where we don't have a public media, the independence of the press has always been a function of its economic independence. And so the Pentagon Papers, the defiance of federal courts, the willingness to go all the way, even to risk the business that was undertaken by the New York Times and the Washington Post, that wouldn't have happened if they didn't have a profound, independent sense of confidence and deep pockets. By the time you get to the Trump era, everybody's reeling. Facebook has eaten the world. Google is dominant in the advertising markets. Yes, the cable networks are still profitable, but cable as a business is in decline. And so there is an air of desperation that is in the media kind of decision maker suites when Donald Trump comes on the scene. But so many people in the media elite, because they lived in zip codes that were isolated from what turned out to be the Trump electorate, simply didn't believe he was going to win. <laughs> There's not going to be a President Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump has been saying that he will run for president as a Republican, which is surprising since I just assumed he was running as a joke. And uh, we better be ready for the fact that he might be leading the Republican ticket next <laughs> I know you don't believe that, but I want to go on. <laughs> Sorry to laugh. Now, if they had understood that he might, how much power did they really have to change the story? I mean, it is a free media, and they could have certainly built a better record of challenging reporting and responsible management of airtime, no question about it. Would that better performance have changed the outcome of the election or just shown us a, a kind of a better record of the media? The media still wouldn't have understood what was happening in rural Wisconsin, uh, central Pennsylvania, or up, upstate Michigan. They still would have missed the election. Uh, look, this is an extraordinary story, I think it's fair to say, and I've talked to some historians as well, it's the biggest political shocker, I won't say upset in the sense that some people have been further behind than Trump was, but the biggest political shocker in American history. I did spend a lot of time in those communities. I, I saw that post-industrial landscape that became the seedbed of the Trump presidency, but I have to say, even spending a lot of time there. Every time I got on a plane back from Pittsburgh to New York, I still thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. But what you're saying is very interesting that our failings during 2016 weren't just to sort of give Trump this sort of airtime whenever he wanted it. It was to really fail to, to get a sense of what was happening out there in the American heartland. Well, and it was structural too, because the great strength of American journalism circa the rise of the internet. So in 1998, you had really strong and well-resourced newsrooms all across the country. 
the Baltimore Sun had international correspondence. The Philadelphia Inquirer had a global news staff. Even the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the Chicago Tribune, the Milwaukee Paper, go on and on. These were really strong newsrooms with professional reporters who stayed and reported in those regions their whole careers and were well compensated to do so. By the time you got to 2016, those newsrooms had been hollowed out. Those reporters had lost their jobs. They'd been riffed out of the business or they'd had to move to the two coasts where media was still thriving. My kind of counterfactual is if we hadn't had this massive traumatic loss in regional journalism, would we have missed the election in New York and Washington? I'm not so sure. I think those newsrooms would have been all over that story. They would have had a sense that something was changing and they would have communicated that through syndicates and wires and the elite papers would have had to pay attention to it in a way that you just can't do, as you say, no, you, you know, no matter how open you are, no matter how reporting-driven you are, if you don't live in these communities for years at a time, it's hard to see the tide rising. You know, you, there's a lot of noise in an election campaign, but what's really changing fundamentally? Well, I think it, it's easier to see that if you have been covering elections in the same region for 20 years. I think that is an important reason why the media writ large, missed the election. I wonder whether another factor was a bias that you get in the media that's not a liberal bias, it's not a conservative bias, it's it's a bias towards covering the best story you can cover. It's a better story bias. We often write storylines that comport with the narratives that we would like to see as journalists that give us the maximum journalist entertainment value. I often think of 2000 when... George W. Bush was a far more interesting story than Al Gore. I believe this strongly. I believe a dangerous and uncertain world requires this nation to have a sharpened sword. I mean, so who I wanted the kind of dull understudy of the Clinton years when you could have George W. Bush? I thought in 2008, Barack Obama got a better press than Hillary Clinton because I think the judgment was made that the first African-American president would be more interesting in many ways than the first female president. My parents shared not only an improbable love, they shared an abiding faith in the possibilities of this nation. They would give me an African name, Barack, or Blessed, believing that in a tolerant America, your name is no barrier to success. And again, in 2016, Donald Trump obviously has far more entertainment value for us as journalists than the entire Republican field. And do you think that's partly the problem, that we do look for entertainment value in our politics now as journalists. And when you do that, you can end up with a president like Donald Trump. Yeah, I think so. We live in an open system. That's our system. You know, it's commercial. In the U.S., we don't have even any kind of anchoring public media institution like the BBC. We are the lowest spending industrialized country on public media in the world by orders of magnitude. And so we depend on the market, and the market is attracted to entertaining figures and to the big story, and that does wash into newsrooms. Some big news here, Megan, huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. That is uh, the race, frankly. Uh, there is no path forward for Hillary Clinton if this uh, we've just To go back to your original point about the Trump era and the kind of way it interacted with journalism. I mean, I so vividly remember the night of the election uh, watching 
the returns. And as soon as Pennsylvania was called, because I, I, I'm a little bit of an electoral college gene counter from my newspaper days, and I was just, oh, that's it. Okay, it's over. And I remember saying to my wife, this is this may be very bad for the country, but it's going to be great for journalism. <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, we're all rooting for the good story. And uh, it was kind of hard not to recognize that, my God, if you're a journalist and you run to the sound of gunfire, let's get going. There's a, there's, there's a lot to do now. And it turned out to be a really rocking four or five years. I mean, that's an interesting take on on a phrase that has sort of entered the, the lexicon, really. The, the former head of CBS said Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but he's, he's great for the media. And what he meant there, of course, was in generating audiences, in generating profits. What you're saying is something very different. You're saying this presented journalists with, with one of the biggest challenges we'd ever faced and a real opportunity to to rise to that challenge in, in a very ethical way, in a very kind of ways that would rediscover the best parts of our industry. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And in fact, you know, I was the dean of the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia at the time, and we had a kind of graduate student newsroom. We were collaborating with different news organizations going out and doing street reporting at, at polls and things. And the students had stayed up late, and they were all expecting uh, a Clinton victory. And they were absolutely stunned and devastated. Sorry to keep you waiting. Complicated business. Complicated. They stayed up until it was absolutely irreversibly clear uh, that Trump had won. I've just received a call from Secretary Clinton. The next morning, they gathered in our kind of student area in a state of, I mean, people weeping, crying, and and uh, just devastated, shocked uh, that this had happened. And and for some of them, for good reason. I mean, international students on kind of tentative visa status worried about what kind of anti-immigration pogrom was now going to be coming down and so forth. And a lot of the faculty came into this sort of spontaneous teach-in and uh, said, hey, buck up, kids. This is like, this is a call to action. I remember a colleague who said, you know, I graduated the year that uh, Nixon was reelected. And we were all in the same room in 72, absolutely devastated that this had happened. How could this happen? And two years later, he resigned because of a couple of Washington Post reporters. So let's get to work, everybody. <laughs> that night, I was at what was supposed to be the Hillary Clinton victory party at the Jacob Javits Convention Center in New York. Uh, I've never known a press room like it. People who are paid to speak for a living were speechless <laughs> yeah. and were speechless for a while. But I remember somebody saying to me something that I thought was very wise. This is a moment where everything we have ever learned as journalists is about to be put to the test. Yeah. You're saying you you basically said the same thing to to your students at Columbia, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that we had an opportunity and a duty if you had any kind of public spirit about your engagement with journalism to get to it. The Trump years were often called a golden age of newspaper journalism. Over the past four years, The Times has conducted two major investigations into President Trump's finances. A two-part examination of the policies of the president and the man seeking to replace him. It seemed that the Washington Post and the New York Times were just duking it out in this remarkable way to produce exclusive after 
exclusive. Uh, do you agree with that, that it, that it was a golden age of journalism? I think it was a great performance by those newsrooms and other newsrooms in holding the Trump administration accountable, and it demonstrated the indispensability of a free press in a constitutional system of checks and balances, because what happened during the Trump years that we hadn't seen in the U.S. since Nixon was the attempt by the president to intimidate the bureaucracy and corrupt the bureaucracy. You know, there was a period in in the kind of good government Barack Obama era where there was a kind of argument even on the left that, well, you know, the media's irresponsible, they're commercial, they're, you know, they're easily exploited. Um, all of the checks and balances we need to hold government accountable can be managed through whistleblowers and through good government kind of transparency acts. And the press isn't as important as it used to be. Well, the Trump administration put the lie to that because they shut down all of the other channels of dissent. Basically, if you wanted to call attention to the urgent danger that Trump was creating inside the government in one area or another, your only recourse was to involve the press and invite the press to report it out and publish it independently. And the press was the only institution in the constitutional system outside of the judiciary that Trump was unable to intimidate and shut down. And so, you know, thank goodness that those newsrooms were well enough funded and confidently enough led to rise to the occasion, but it was more the constitutional system that was vindicated. One talking point in our industry right now is a generational shift, how the Trump years especially have brought a new generation to our industry, to journalism, who are more interested perhaps in activism than reporting, in, in pushing a political agenda. I don't experience it as an oppositional dialogue. I think we all recognize uh, on the faculty that the era of a single orthodoxy, a single powerful set of legacy institutions in journalism is over. We're in an era now already of many journalisms. And as long as you are intellectually honest, driven by reporting and evidence, there are many ways to go out and make a difference as a reporter. You can choose different kinds of voicings and media, podcasting and narrative. You know, the New Yorker's long form pieces have a certain kind of voice. And if your political convictions take you to the Weekly Standard or the nation, that doesn't bother us in some kind of idea. You know, that's not a violation of, of your presence at the J School. What we want to persuade you of is you'll be effective no matter what voice you write in, no matter what framings you feel drawn to, if you are scientific in your methodology. That is, you're all about the evidence. You're about the reporting, and you never go out to report into a conclusion you've already reached, but you go out every time to discover. Because if you do that, you will find out no matter what you assume at the beginning of a story, if you report it out properly, it'll turn out to be something different than you thought. And you, if you can't do that kind of work, you're not going to make an impact because that's where the great work comes from. An area of, of journalism that has got a lot of attention in recent years has been this idea of both sidesism that journalists give equal weight to opposing arguments in a debate and they often leave the reader to decide which side they 
agree with. Now, a lot of people are saying that's not the role of journalism. Journalists should adjudicate who is telling the truth. I mean, obviously, in a situation where one is telling the truth, one isn't. It's clear, but often it isn't that clear. I just wonder how you're navigating that at Columbia. I think we've had and pocketed the discourse around false equivalence. So um, the way you just put it, if you confront a pair of sources where one is demonstrably speaking the truth and the other one is not, that is not complicated. Your ethical duty as a journalist is to seek out the truth and report it. So if you encounter a liar, you do not incorporate them into your file as some kind of notional balance. But as you say, where it's not obvious who has a monopoly on truth, and there are evidence-based arguments about that, I think you do have a duty to seek the truth and report it. There's a great quote, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know, which is the journalism professor that says, if somebody tells you it's raining outside and somebody tells you it's sunny, well, look out the window and, and, and figure it out for yourself. But I mean, sometimes there isn't a window <laughs> immediately at hand. Sometimes the weather isn't sunny or rainy. It's a, a mix of the two. It, it, it's not as simple as I think a lot of our readers would like it to be. I think if we really want to seek the truth, we have to recognize that the truth is often complex and it's often elusive in some respects and it's nuanced. That's not an excuse for enabling liars or for being complicit in propaganda campaigns uh, such as the climate denial campaign that is often cited as the example of kind of failed media false equivalents. We absolutely should be alert to that. And covering someone like Donald Trump who doesn't care about what's true is a novel problem that I don't think we quite figured out except through the application of really core, hardcore reporting. But the, but the problem of amplification of enabling his voice even when he was lying, I don't think we figured that out. And populism isn't going to leave us. So that's work we still have to do. Steve, one of your legacies as you leave Columbia is a focus on scholarships for people of color. You have tried to build up a, a more diverse student body. Is that one of the problems of our industry right now, that too much news is is reported and commented on by, by people like you and me? I mean, two white guys. Yeah, it is because it doesn't reflect the communities that we cover. It doesn't create understanding and vision of where the important stories are that's complete or adequate. It's hard to cover any subject in America today without being literate in the place of race and the history of racism. You can't cover sports. You can't cover Hollywood. You can't run away from this. And yet we have these newsrooms that have been constructed and led almost exclusively by people who have not had a personal experience of racism and don't come from families that have struggled with its structures. So how can we fulfill our own ideals? It's been a long conversation in journalism about how to, how to address this, and yet the record is not inspiring. The generation that's coming out of schools like ours now, I just hope that journalism makes room for them because... You know, it's a very unstable business, even though it's a great time to be a young journalist. There are plenty of gigs out there, plenty of jobs. But the the careers that my generation enjoyed that were quite stable and, you know, sort of middle class, even upper middle class civil service kinds of careers 
very hard to find now. So you really have to be committed to journalism over a whole lifetime to be able to do your best work. And I look at this generation, they have an enormous amount of promise. I just hope that we make room for them to kind of reach their own full potential. Steve, what are you telling them that is coming over the horizon from an industry perspective? Are we going to face another near-death experience, for instance, with artificial intelligence? I mean, what are the, what are the threats to the industry and what are the opportunities? I mean, I think we're coming out of the disruption, at least the disruption that started where our conversation started in the late 90s with the emergence of the internet. There are big bubbles in the media and entertainment industry that will inevitably burst. Podcasting is a bubble. Streaming is a bubble. Right now, there's enormous investment in content that's filtering through to journalism. But I think we can see the next 10 or 15 years, which are going to be dominated by these engagement-oriented competitive streaming platforms and mobile, and that news will have a place in that universe that's probably a growing place because it's one of the rare live action and large audience content streams that's available um, I don't know if, you know, Amazon, outside of owning the Washington Post through Jeff Bezos or Apple or Netflix will ever want to run a newsroom, but I'm sure they've been tempted by it already, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen. And I think this model that the Times, New York Times, and the Washington Post have already demonstrated and others are, are coming behind of subscription-based, digital-first, multimedia news looks like a powerful destination after – 10 or 20 years of absolutely existential dread and instability. So, you know, I'm optimistic. Of course, where we began this conversation was I was optimistic in 1998, and I was <laughs> was wrong to be so. <laughs> but I was right eventually. It just took 20 years. Uh, so I'm, I'm hopeful. I really enjoyed looking back with Steve at some of the changes which have overtaken our industry. And to be honest, I think we're still catching our breath. Because at the same time as dealing with such dizzying digital disruption, we've also had to cover some of the biggest stories of the modern era. The attacks of September the 11th, the coronavirus, the existential threat of global warming. But as Steve said there, one of the central challenges over the past 20 years has been trying to navigate a journalistic course in these ever more polarised times. The internet has brought us closer to our viewers, listeners and readers, but the algorithms of the news industry have also created business models that make more money when we align our coverage with our audience's biases and prejudices. The line between news and views is getting blurrier and blurrier. The neutral voice is being drowned out. And the fact that we spend so much of our working lives on social media has become an occupational hazard. For just as we now know a lot more about what motivates the people who consume our work, they are often being given a much clearer sense about the views and beliefs that motivate us.
Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithurst and Nicole Kirby. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. And the commissioning editor for GNI is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryant, and next on Journo, we speak to a reporter who few people had even heard of five years ago, but who I reckon is now Australia's most influential journalist. <laughs>